Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, the end is nigh of season four, as I finish up my discussion on the Gulf Breeze UFO sightings in, well, Gulf Breeze, Florida. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Everyone and welcome to episode 10 of season 4 of the show. And of course that means it is the last episode of the season. No, I did not plan this so that I got Halloween off. But I'll get into it later at the end of the show. There will be some stuff for uh, for Halloween coming up. But 
Uh, yeah, we're just going to continue on with it. We talked pretty much last week about Golf Breeze and just the story of Ed Walters and Francis and the whole family, uh, kind of from beginning to the end of it. Um, and there's some stuff still to talk about. This episode, we're going to focus on uh, evidence. We're going to focus on analysis of said evidence. We're going to focus on people that said that Ed was hoaxing. We are going to focus on people that said Ed was not hoaxing and all of that great stuff. Uh, a lot of speculation this episode. A lot of... I have I have opinions tonight, people. And so that's what, uh, that's what tonight is going to all be about. Uh, of course, we're going to get into uh, some local headlines. Of course, we're going to get into your small town secrets and all of that great jazz. But let's finish out season four and uh, bury it with the other seasons. I don't know. I guess they don't die. They live on in the people that haven't listened yet uh, with some UFO goodness with uh, our discussion on the great the one, the only, Golf Breeze Florida, and Ed Walters, and Bruce McAbee, and all of those other people that we are talking about tonight. All that is coming up, so don't go anywhere. I don't know why I say that. This isn't a radio show. This is a podcast. You can do, you can pause it. You could pause it for days. I don't even know what you're doing. But uh, we'll get in. We'll get into it all. Oh, yes. And one more thing. We all celebrate Halloween in our own ways, and here... At Straight Up Strange Network, we want to see the spooky spectrum of seasonal spirit you all have to offer up. So, we've switched some things around, and this year, we are opening up our annual pumpkin carving contest to all forms of art and high strangeness to celebrate Sam Hain. We want to see it. We're taking anything from makeup, decor, costumes, pumpkin carving, drawing, painting, or whatever other creative expression you can think of. All is acceptable. Post your creation, uh, tag it at Strange Pods. That's on Twitter, and ensure you're following at Strange Pods to qualify. Prizes for the top three finalists. Submissions accepted no later than October 31st at midnight Pacific Standard Time. And a couple little things I'm going to add on to that. Uh, I bet if you hashtagged at Strange Pods too, that probably wouldn't hurt. Uh, that's on Twitter. I think Strange Pods is also the same on Instagram. So I'm pretty sure that you can get to it either way. But if you are looking to show off your uh, Halloween spirit and maybe win some stuff in the interim, then this might be something you will be interested in. So uh, go to at Strange Pods, uh, at, at Strange Pods, Instagram and Twitter, and uh, check it out. Hi there, my name is Kevin and I host the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Before starting the Can't Make This Up History Podcast, I taught college history for five years during which I learned the best history is told through amazing, unbelievable stories that actually happened. For example, did you know that the Nazis believed they could use witchcraft and astrology to shape government policy? Or that in the 1800s, New York City shipped its prisoners, poor and insane, to a miserable island in the East River where convicts served as orderlies for the mentally ill? Did you know that a 1920s con artist masquerading as a Native American chief was able to bilk European aristocrats out of millions and attracted beetle-sized crowds wherever he went? 
Or that the Franklin Expedition, lost to the Canadian Arctic in one of history's greatest unsolved mysteries for over 150 years, was finally discovered in 2014 by following Inuit oral history? The Can't Make This Up History Podcast is dedicated to telling these stories and more through interviews with a wide array of guests, from academic historians to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. New episodes of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast are available every other Tuesday on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Throughout all of this, Ed and his family had their fair share of ridicule and support. From debunkers far and nationwide to the support of Bud Hopkins and Bruce McAbee, it ran the gambit. Dr. Bruce McAbee has a BS in physics and has been investigating UFOs, especially in photo analysis, since he joined NICAP in the late 1960s. McAbee started hearing about Gulf Breeze in January of 88, and as January moved into February, it just kept coming up, both in the news and by his colleagues. So, on February 20th, he flew down the Gulf Breeze to take a look at the photos and have a talk with Ed. Bruce found Ed to be a down-to-earth man, successful and straightforward. He seemed to take the whole UFO business very seriously. Ed and Bruce spent 14 hours together. In that time, Maccabee studied the photographs and interviewed Ed, at times asking the same questions over and over which is kind of a standard interview at Tactic when you're trying to, you know, flesh somebody out to see if they change their story. In that 14 hours, Ed never grew discouraged or annoyed and gladly answered Maccabee's questions, no matter how many times he asked them. So Maccabee didn't just go to uh, study some pictures. He wanted to interview Ed, just like Bud had interviewed Ed and everyone else had interviewed Ed. He wanted to get... Uh, a bearing on this guy to see see what he was all about. So it wasn't just going down to study some pictures. He really was like almost interrogating Ed in a way. Uh, then just, you know, the pictures were just the second part of his plan. The road shot, a.k.a. photo 19, was one of the more interesting photos to Maccabee. He took measurements of elements in the photo and surmised that if the craft was real, it was most likely 13 feet in diameter. He also figured out that if this was a hoax, then the only way it could be perpetrated was with a large model. One so large that there seemed to be no way Ed could have transported it, set it up on a quasi-busy road, and do it without any help. Also, he would need to use some sort of crane or something to hang the model over the road and the big sticking point in that in that photo is that everyone goes and we'll talk about this a little bit later too everyone goes Ed just did double exposure which means you take a picture you don't develop your film you take another picture on top of it and now they're one but it's just like if anyone knows anything about Photoshop or any photo editing almost anything that uses layers like, it's just like layers in Photoshop. You're just putting stuff on top of each other. So, like, there's a reflection. If you look at that shot, I think I have it posted. I think if you look at the show notes and stuff at stsgas.com, uh, that photo's in there. There's light reflecting off of the road. 
So you can't have, you can't superimpose that unless you line it up perfectly. And I'm going to get into a lot of how later, how all this went in. Uh, so he's, so Bruce is pretty much, he's like, I think the only way that you could do it and get that reflection and do all this is by just hanging a huge model over the road. And it wasn't like a dead back roads. Eh? Uh, Pedro. It was, it, I mean, you know, there were people up and down. Like, you just couldn't see, you just couldn't see Ed, like, hiding from everyone and setting up this model and getting this shot and doing all this stuff and then getting it down before a car would have showed up. In fact, he concluded that if all these photos were a hoax, then they would all need to be made from models. Models that didn't seem to be easy to hide or transport without being found out. I mean, even if Ed had like a two foot model, like looking that thing around town, not like a great way to go about it. But models are not the only way to fake UFO pictures. As I said in the last episode, double exposures were possible with Ed's older Polaroid camera. One night, Maccabee and Charles Flanagan from MUFON were experimenting with Ed's camera near Ed's house. Maccabee was able to make two photos using the double exposure method of a nearby lamppost. So he used like the glow of the lamppost, like he took a picture of that, didn't take the film out, like then he positioned the camera and then took a picture of the sky and made two fake UFO photos. This fooled both Charles and Ed. He did this to demonstrate that it could be done, but also that you needed a little know-how of photography to do it. And like in the book, like, cause in this section of the book, this is Bruce McAbee writing this section of the book. This isn't Ed like telling us third person. I can see what he did. Like he, like I said, like I just said, he took a picture of a lamppost of that glow, that light. And then he positioned the camera in such a way where he knew that it would look like it was in the sky, but you kind of have to like know where to put it because if not your your glow could show up in the middle of the tree it could show up on the ground it could show up you know on someone's head you don't know unless you kind of know where to put that camera i think a lot of it is just knowing how it's going to turn out ed at first didn't understand how it was done he didn't seem to have any knowledge of double exposure or any other photo trick trickery such as uh, reflections on glass and why should he Ed Walters was not a photographer. He used a simple Polaroid camera. He didn't have any books on photography or any other equipment. It wasn't an interest. It wasn't a hobby of his. In fact, this little trick by Maccabee is the exact reason that Ed went out and bought that new Polaroid 600, which spits the picture out before it's even developed. He did this to rid himself of the accusations of hoaxing. A representative from Polaroid, a technician, even told Maccabee and the guys at MUFON that double exposures were not impossible on the 600, but could not be achieved without excessive manipulations of both the camera and the film. And at the time, even Maccabee didn't know how to do it. I mentioned in the last episode, Ed, under instructions from Bruce Maccabee, used his 600 camera along with another 600 he borrowed from Dwayne Cook, the uh, editor at uh, the uh, newspaper, to construct an SRS. And also last episode, I said I didn't know what SRS stood for. But now I do. Uh, a self 
referencing stereo camera. This consisted of the two cameras mounted on a board that could swivel and all of this was mounted on some sort of stand. So uh, it was a lot of, it, it had to do with, it was harder because now you had to account for both cameras because you're taking, you know, one picture, two pictures at the same time. So you're getting like a, you know, but one's at a slightly different angle. One is, you know, it's, but it helped Ed A uh, document it more credibly and it would help eventually help, uh, as I'll talk about here in a little bit, help uh, Bruce find distances and sizes and all of that. Ed's first attempt at the SRS camera was uh, not the best. It was wobbly, he used a wooden rod as a support, and he took the pictures one after the other instead at the same time. So he went click click instead of click. This did yield results, however. But they were not as accurate as Maccabee would have liked. But those first SRX pictures did have witnesses. Dwayne and Dory Cook were there, as well as some other friends. And I think Francis might have been there as well. They watched him set up the rig, load new film in both cameras, and even record the serial numbers on the packets of film. Then they decided to leave. However, they didn't leave at all. They just drove to the other side of the park, turned their lights off, and quietly drove back. They were gone for mere minutes only to sneak back up on Ed as he clicked off those two pictures. He did not have time to rush around and set up models or anything like that, because even if you're doing double exposures, you still have to have a model. You have to have something to take that first picture of. Later, Ed reconstructed the SRS camera. He made it sturdier by mounting it on a tripod. He also practiced hitting the separate shutter buttons simultaneously. Ed was able to capture another set of pictures, this time over the bay with a lighted bridge in the foreground. This is important because Maccabee was able to use the data from the new SRS as well as the lights, which he could get exact measurements of, to accurately determine the size of the two objects in the photo. Maccabee's analysis determined that, so there's two of them in here, a small one and a big one. The smaller object, was two and a half feet in diameter. It was 132 feet away from the camera and 120 feet in altitude. The larger object was 25 feet in diameter at 475 feet out and 150 feet in altitude. So here's where I'm gonna rant for a little bit. So, uh, and all this did take place at Shoreline Park. I didn't realize, like at first I thought they had only gone there a couple of times and they had gone down. But Shoreline Park, when I looked at it again, in the book they go, oh, it was Shoreline Park. And then I looked at it, it's much bigger than I thought it was and actually goes to the shoreline. I didn't realize that. That's what you get for not looking at uh, Google image photos in uh, Earth mode so you can actually see the trees and the layout and everything. So here's the thing. Uh, one of these UFOs, only two and a half feet in diameter, very tiny, almost like a drone but also the size of a model, arguably. If you want to make a good one, two and a half feet wouldn't be a bad size to use. But what Maccabee is saying here, because this is really the smaller one that I think really gets it, is that this wasn't a two and a half foot object that was situated in such a way as to use like force perspective or something like that to make it appear like it was a bigger craft further away. What he is saying is, 
this object is hanging in the sky, 120 feet in the air, and it's two and a half feet in diameter. That is its size. So what that means is either A, this is an object in the sky, and that is correct. Or somehow, some way, Ed Walters was able to hang two and a half foot model 120, 132 feet away from him, which would have been above the water because he was near the shore, and then 120 feet in altitude. So somehow, Ed got like a boat and a crane on it or something, sent them out to sea, sent them out into the bay, and had them hang this two and a half foot model over the water? That seems like a large feat to pull off, just a hoax, a photograph. And then, like even think, then we have to talk about there's another object in here that's much bigger. So what did Ed do with that? Did he, did he double expose the big one but use a real model for the small one? Did he hang a huge 25 foot model over the bay in the same fashion? If you're gonna hoax it, hoax it. If you have the ability to hang a 25 foot long model 475 feet out over the ocean, 150 feet up in the air, then why'd you even bother with the little one? No, I think I think these two pictures really say a lot. They, they go, hey, this is how big these things were, and this is where they were at. Yeah, he could have hoaxed it, but the lengths that he would have had to have gone to would have been just insanity. There is other evidence as well. In both of Ed's books, they are chock full of report after report of other townspeople seeing UFOs. Uh, I talked a couple about a, some real brief ones in the last episode, but if you get uh, the Gulf Breeze sightings and abductions in Gulf Breeze, you will find, especially in the abductions of Gulf Breeze, the second book, the second half of that book is really just UFO report, UFO report, UFO report. There's a bunch of them. There was physical evidence as well. A circle of dead grass was discovered by Ed and some men from Ufon in the vacant field behind Ed's house, which I believe now, actually I don't believe, I know it is, is a soccer field near the high school. This was found after Ed and Francis saw the blue beam UFO, the one with the bean in the backyard. If you remember from last episode, they saw that weird creature in the backyard and then it ran off into this field and they saw the blue beam and the thing was gone. So he surmised that this thing had been beamed up via the blue beam. Some of the grass and the soil was sent to Pioneer Labs in Pensacola to be tested. They found no evidence of lightning strikes nor plant disease. They grew squash. And the reason they grew squash is because squash is very susceptible to like herbicides and pesticides and stuff. And the squash, so they grew squash in the soil sample itself. And it had no trouble growing. The evidence suggests it was either killed by a herbicide that did not contaminate the soil or some other chemical that was very short acting or was done by some form of energy capable of killing the grass. Also, grass did not grow again for about 18 months. There were a lot of people out to get Ed and expose him as a hoaxer. Someone spread flyers around town accusing him of being a Satan worshipper and a drunk. 
who could often be found at the town dive bar. However, at the time, Gulf Breeze was a dry county, and the town had no bars whatsoever. And I don't know, it might still be a dry county, I didn't really look it up, but it may or may not be. A teenager who was an acquaintance with the Walters, Tommy Smith, testified before the mayor, the sheriff, and other city officials that he had helped Ed fake most, if not all, the photos. However, he offered no real evidence, and most of his statements are either conjecture or don't hold water. I'm going to go through some of those, well, right now. He claimed the grass circle was made by uh, turning a trampoline upside down and just jumping on it for hours, smushing out the grass. This is not consistent at all with the analysis done on the grass and the soil. Also, jumping on grass is not going to kill it for 18 months. Also, jumping up and down on the hard ground for a couple of hours is probably not like a great experience anyway. Tommy said that the video of the UFO, the, the one that I can't find that I want to find, the minute and 38 second where they filmed it on the road, that video, he said that was just a UFO, a model UFO on a pipe with a flashlight being shown up the pipe to illuminate the UFO. People who have analyzed this photo, Bruce McAbee, say that there's nothing blocking the bottom of the UFO. Like you can't see a pipe, you can't see anything at the bottom that it's attached to. And it rotates at a steady seven and a half RPMs. So not only did someone have to hold this pipe, shine a flashlight at it, but then they had to rotate it smoothly and accurately at a constant seven and a half RPMs. He says the photo of the UFO with the blue beam was simply made by peeling back peeling the backing off the film and then putting it back on. And experts and manufacturers say, this is not how that, you couldn't do it that way. And I see what they're saying because you're trying to make this beam, this sliver that's slightly brighter and it would look blue on a dark photograph because it's dark. So like, I'm thinking the only way that you could do it is that you would have to like, do like a double exposure, but then you'd have to like cut a slit in the backing to get your beam and then peel that back, let it expose and then put it, and then put it back. And like, that could be done. But once again, when you're doing all this, it's not like Photoshop. You can't see what's going on while you're doing it. So like, you would have to match up a double exposure, the peeling of the film. You'd have to, you'd have to match all this up perfectly to get it to look convincing. And if you can't see what you're doing, like how much film would you burn through trying to get one picture? Especially if you don't know what you're doing. I think it would take, it would be the most frustrating thing on the world to get that, that going. Tommy has also claimed that the very first photo Ed took in November of 1987, the one, the very first one that was in the paper, one of the first five that was in the paper, the one with the UFO partially hidden behind a tree was just a fluke, and he had no idea how the double exposure happened that way. This makes no sense. There is almost no way with that type of camera that you can do that without some sort of kind of advanced techniques to pull it off. So today, I could make that photo in about five minutes, right? I could go out, I could take a picture, 
of a tree outside. I could put that picture in Photoshop. I could select out that tree, copy and paste on a new layer so that it's by itself, but it's in the same position. Then I could get my UFO picture, my PNG, my transparent background UFO, slap it in another layer and put the UFO in between the two layers and then position my UFO behind the, the tree layer and it would look like it's coming out from behind a tree. But to do that in 1988 with a Polaroid camera, you would have to uh, make your model, or actually probably more like a cutout. Let's say it's like a flat picture illustration of a, of a UFO and, and cut out an outline of said tree. Then you would have to make a double exposure perfectly lining that that cutout tree up against the real tree so that it would look like it was coming out from behind the tree. Once again, just like the blue beam stuff I talked about earlier, how much film would you burn through trying to get that one picture? Like, Ed would have had, he didn't know what he was doing. Ed would have had to have sat out in the, in the street in front of his house. I'm not going to tell you where his house is, but I do have an article linked in here uh, that will give you the address of where it is. And if you look at it, there are houses all over the place. The school is behind him. The city, like the town hall, whatever you want to call it, is down the street. You can walk to Shoreline Park from it. There's no way he was Ed could have sat out there for who knows how long trying to get this great picture, trying to line this stuff up and not be seen by somebody in town. I just don't buy it. I know I'm getting really fiery about it, but as if you haven't figured it out, uh, I, I think I, I kind of believe that. I believe that about it. When asked about uh, the road shot, shot 19, Tommy at first simply said, this is just another double exposure. However, when he was asked to account for the reflection off the street, he couldn't answer and he, he backpedaled on the explanation. Like that is one of the reasons why that photo holds up because no one can really accurately explain how they got that light to be correct and be there and be on the road. Then of course, there is the infamous model. Walter's family moved into a new home in December of 1988. Before that, their former house was on the market for 10 months where it sat vacant. Vacant. It was bought by the Mesner family. In March of 1990, Robert Mesner was in the attic looking for a shutoff valve when he found a model UFO that looked similar to Ed Sidey's. The model was nine inches in diameter. It was made out of styrofoam plates on the ends and the middle section was a piece of old blueprint paper used by Ed. On June 4th, this is probably about a month after the model was discovered, of 1990, Craig Myers from the uh, Pensacola News Journal interviewed Mesner and asked some very specific questions. And one of those was, did you find any models of UFOs? Anything like that? Which, yeah, is kind of a weird question to ask, but I don't know. The guy found the model a month before, so I don't know if Craig just showed up one day, like Ed says in his book, or if Mesner called Craig eventually. I'm not sure about that. So that seems pretty cut and dry, doesn't it? But there is a lot to unpack here, and we're going to unpack it right now. 
the model itself did not have the correct markings. For example, it did not have the correct number of portholes uh, of many, if not all, of the photos that Ed took. It was concluded by MUFON investigators and Ed, you know, they were, you know, that the blueprints were from plans to a house that Ed had started designing in 1989 for a couple in Michigan named the Lynn's. Ed admitted that the plans were his and that he had finished them in September of 1989. The Lynn's, however, never had the house built. Instead, they went and bought another home. I think actually another one that Ed did build, like back in the day. But so here's the thing. Um, I've linked in the show notes. You can go to, you can check out the, the article that I used for this. And uh, they found this out by being able to read what was on the thing. So they were able to match up like, it gives like the dimensions of the slab, the cement slab the house was going to be built on and dimensions of the room and all of that. So Ed was able to take what they could see of it, go back in his records and go, the only house this fits is the house that I designed in 1989 and didn't build. So what this is, what this means is this UFO model was built. It couldn't have built been built uh, before 1989. So we're talking like almost a year and a half ish after uh, like the last photo in May of 1st of 1988, the May Day photo. The model simply didn't exist in the time frame, and uh, I didn't really put this in my notes, so I might be mis- might not be remembering it right. Uh, they came back and said, "No, no, these are plans from something Ed did back in like 1986." But once again, they looked up the plan, you know, the information he had, and none of the measurements that they had matched up with this other house that a lot of these debunkers had tried to come back and say that that was. I mean, so once again, this model, just another attempt to discredit Ed. And uh, that really kind of does it for the analysis. So like, you know, it's the guys from MUFON that helped them out. It's Bruce McAbee that helped them out. Bud Hopkins was there as sort of a, I think he interviewed him a lot to figure out what was going on, but he was really kind of there for guidance and stuff. Like Ed had gotten a deal to write a book. And he didn't write a book. I had the book. The book is right here. Uh, $200,000 advance. But before, I mean, like Bud Hopkins told him, he's like, hey, before you do this book deal, there's some things you need to do first. You need to get the photos analyzed and authenticated by someone knows what they're talking about, a.k.a. Bruce McAbee. You have to take a polygraph test and pass it, which he did. He's taken at least four of them that I've heard about. I don't know how many since. And, uh, and, you know, get all of that. Get get your ducks in a row before you do it. So he was kind of, you know, he was also the guy that said, hey, maybe you should, uh, he was one of the guys that kind of brokered, maybe you should get some hypnosis going uh, about what happened in the past, which we're talking about in Patreon at the Backroads episode. Part two will follow this of the, UFO, uh, the uh, abductions in Golf Breeze. But that wasn't the only wacky story to come out about Golf Breeze, about UFOs. A little bit of Ed Walters in there as well. So let's let's talk about that after the boom. Hold up. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, of course, you can't talk about Golf Breeze and its UFO sightings without talking about the Doomsday 6 or the Golf Breeze 6. And I'm going to let everyone know right now, if you want to look into this, because it's actually kind of, it's a really cookie story, and there's a lot of angles to it, and uh, I'm not sure if I got it all right, to be honest. So if you want to read about it yourself, Google Golf Breeze 6. Don't Google Doomsday 6. Some people call it Doomsday 6 because that is the snazzier uh, name, but if you do that, you'll get like one or two hits about the actual uh, thing that happened. But if you, if you Google Golf Breeze 6, that's where you get your meat. That's where you get your uh, your good stuff. So I'm going to try to make as much sense of this as I can. On July 14, 1990, four men out of the six people were arrested in an apartment in Golf Breeze after one of them was pulled over for a broken taillight earlier in the day. Uh, so they, they pulled him over. Found out that he had deserted the army. We'll get into it. And uh, got him. And then in return, we're able to get the other four that were... I'll get into where they were at. All six of the officers were in the army. 
They were cryptographers, top secret clearances. They had all been stationed in Augsburg, Germany. And on July 9th, went AWOL and made it back to the States undetected. Headlines painted uh, a different picture almost every day of what happened. First, they were spies. Then, they were in a cult and had come to Gulf Breeze to fight the Antichrist, which, reported by a MUFON source, would be Ed Walters himself. So, I'm not sure if they stand behind that, but there were some people that examined him that said that they they said Ed Walters is the Antichrist and that's why we went there. I don't know how true that is, but it's a juicy tidbit. And then they were there to expose a UFO cover-up. And a lot of people point to this as, like, conspiracy, but I think it's just... This is the new story evolving over the days. You know, just like you get now. Only now it happens every hour instead of every day that the headline changes. What actually happened? Vance Davis of the Gulf Breeze 6 told his t side of the tale in 1992. It all started in 1989 when the group of officers started experimenting with tarot cards, ESP, ghost, and other esoteric concepts. All of the things that I have been playing with, awesome. They were told by spirits via a Ouija board that the end was coming, the rapture was coming. The board had predicted the Gulf War. The earthquake that hit Iran in 1990 killed like 200,000 some people. And the LA riots in 1992. It was up to them to tell everyone of the upcoming rapture. but. They didn't know how to legally get out of the army. They didn't know how to do it. Like, these guys had never been in trouble before. It was the board that told them, just leave. So, they listened to the board and went AWOL. All of them had a lifelong interest in the paranormal. Davis had even taken courses on Silva mind control as a teen. The others were Kenneth Benson, who was really into hypnosis. Michael, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher his name, but I'm going to try it. Michael Hookstead, Annette Eccleston, Chris Perlock, and Will Satterberg. Perlock and Benson had a mutual friend while they were both stationed in Pensacola. Her name was Anna Foster. She was a self-proclaimed psychic. She had also attended a MUFON conference in Pensacola just days prior to the event. So I want to stop here for a second. In the book, Ed introduces... Golf Breeze 6 by saying that Anna's uh, daughter, who was a friend of his daughter, came to their house and said that they had been raided by the FBI, guns pointed everywhere when they came to arrest uh, the house the house guests that they had for that day. And then he also says in that that Anna is not her real name, but in every document that I found, every blog post, everything, she's referred to as Anna. So I don't know if that was just like a fake name that's stuck, or if that's a mess up, but her name actually is Anna. I'm not sure. So the apartment is raided. Four of them are arrested there. They've already got the one driving the van, who I believe was Hookstead, the one whose name I'm probably saying wrong. And then Eccleston was at a nearby campground. So she, she wasn't with them. Not 100% sure why. It appears that they had come back to Florida to look into what happened at Gulf Breeze gather intel, and warn the president about the coming rapture. I think. It gets a little hazy. I think they had a couple of motives. 
And I don't even know if they know what they were doing. Uh, but for some reason, the UFOs at Gulf Breeze were going to be the catalyst for all of this. A few days after their arrest, a message was sent to local newspaper and news affiliates. It read, ABC, NBC, CBS, AP, UPI, and U.S. Army. Free the Gulf Breeze 6. We have the missing plans, the box of 500 plus photos, and the plans you want back. Here is proof with close-ups cut out. Next, we send the close-ups and everything unless they are released. Answer code AUGSBB3CM. Uh, I found that, but I didn't find the, uh, the cut-out picture of proof. That'd be kind of a fun photo to stumble upon. The officers were given a general discharge and demoted, but never faced any real consequences. They didn't get jail time. They weren't like court-martialed or anything. They were just kind of let go. But it's like, and I don't think they were let go because of this anonymous threat, or maybe they were. I don't know. Either it's a huge cover-up to uh, keep these amazing photos and plans out of the eyes of the public, or they just, maybe the army was just like, we should just wash our hands of these guys. Like, it's not worth the trouble. Let's just, let's just demote the shit out of them and get him out of our hair. But what about Ed Walters and his family? For a while, he remained part of the UFO community. Like, he he did some talks. I've got a link to a, a YouTube video of an interview he did in, like, 1994 uh, about some stuff that people had seen otherwhere and then, like, a, a couple of new sightings and stuff like that. But ultimately, he just faded into the background. Some say that he changed his name and he moved away from Florida. Others say that he still lives in Florida, but has become very hard to contact. He's not on social media, I looked, or anything like that. Uh, others even say that he still lives in Gulf Breeze, is just lying low and going on with his life. Um, and that's really it. Like, that is the story a few closing things before we move on. So I linked in the last episode to my two favorite last podcast on the left episodes, which are the Gulf Breeze episodes. So if you're looking for more and you really want to laugh about it, listen to those episodes. Uh, I'll link them. If you go back and you look at the show notes of last episode they are in there I was going to mention them last episode and I just forgot to because uh, I listed them as sources not just because I want people to go and list them but because I did use them as a source probably subconsciously because you know I'm getting to the point to where I could probably just sit down and like quote those episodes all the way through so I, I'm sure that I picked something from there and threw it in that conversation but they're great episodes I highly recommend them check them out and I just want to talk about, like, um, I did hear some stuff about how Bruce McAbee later kind of pulled away from Ed and the Gulf Breeze sightings and just said that maybe Ed's photos were faked or some of them were faked. But, like, I looked for that. I couldn't find anything. And if anyone does have, like, a link or something to where he said that, specifically about Ed's photos... And send it to me because I would like to see it. Uh, I think he had some issues 
down the line with other people's photos. Uh, people saw UFOs in Gulf Breeze for years after 93, 94. And I think there were some, some photos from that time period that were taken by people other than Ed that Maccabee had some issues with. But as far as I can find, unless I'm just not Googling the right set of keywords or not trying to find the right newspaper, it's always weird when I talk long enough for the screensavers to come on. But I think, like, Ed's photos, they hold up. Um, you know, of, of course there's weird little foibles here and there, um, but I don't think he was hoaxing it. The thing about it, like, you know, I, I always go back, like, the model, I think, has been thoroughly debunked. The other thing about that model that I always like to point out is Ed, Ed designed homes. Ed built homes. Like, Ed could build things. You think a man with, like, Ed's skill set would construct a measly paper model with some with some styrofoam plates on it? Now, I think if Ed won the hoax it, he could have built a much better model than that. No, I think I think it happened, uh, and, you know, just, we don't, this happens all the time. I think a lot of debunkers will come and they'll say this, this, and this, but they never look into any of the evidence. They never look into the reports on anything. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by the late, great Stanton Freeman about debunkers and about, like, people that just, just scoff at this stuff is, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. Basically saying, I don't care what you got. I don't care if you have refutable evidence saying that this is uh, true. I don't care. My mind is made up. I just, I'm, I'm closed-minded, basically, is what it was. But I think there's a lot of UFO stuff out there that's probably hooey. But this is not one of them. Some of those pictures are very intriguing and very awesome. So... Uh, I, I didn't link as many as I could. A lot of them you can find online. Like I said, a lot of them are just in the books. Uh, get that second book if you want to see that first photo with the tree. It's not in the first book. And I think that was because at the time it was still quote-unquote property of the newspaper. And then the second book it came out, everything had reverted back to Ed. And uh, like that's a great one behind the tree. The road photo is an amazingly credible incredible and incredible photo and just you know the Niz the camera stuff the the th the 4d nismo camera thing that mufon game that was it was sealed in wax they had taken a control shot at the beginning of the film in case he tried to change the film you know it took four exposures at the same time you know it was opened by a separate group of people in mufon under videotape they recorded the whole thing i just think like and Bruce McAbee touched on this in the book. Like, eventually a hoaxer will get to a point in all of this where he just figures out a way to stop cooperating without looking like he's cooperating, right? Like, and yeah, after May, the uh, UFOs kind of went away for Ed, but, you know, the the he goes, he buys a new camera because everyone's telling him, hey, your old camera that could be your downfall. He uses the SRS camera because Bruce McAbee tells him, hey, this will help give you credibility in all of this. He uses a sealed, you know, Max, like all that stuff, camera from MUFON. 
every time they give him something that if he was hoaxing, he could have just been like, uh, oh, the UFOs are gone. They aren't coming back anymore. But he doesn't. You know, he gets that camera from MUFON. He gets pictures. He gets a new Polaroid of his own volition. He gets pictures. He gets, he constructs the SRS camera. He gets pictures. Never once did he try to find a way to weasel out of it until it naturally came to its ending point. So there's a lot to dig in here. Uh, those books, like I, what I guess what I was getting to before I went off on that is uh, there's a lot of pictures in the books that are in the books. I don't want to scan them and put them up on the internet. Even though the books are out of print, I probably wouldn't get in like amazing trouble for it, but you can get those books. Like I said, they're out of print. You can find them used all over the place. Amazon, if you can't get them there. You might just be able to walk into an old bookstore and find them. But that is the massive story of Gulf Breeze. Like I said, if you want more, last podcast on the left has two great episodes on it. And if you really want to get into the abduction angle, like I said, I am doing that in Patreon on the Backwards Podcast, the exclusive Patreon podcast. Uh, five bucks a month will get you that. And I talked about a couple of his abduction experiences last time and the hypnotic regression that he went over. And on the next episode, we're going to continue that discussion with two other experiences that he had and a, a mystical place that he started to dream about that he wanted to go check out. So the story of Ed Walters does not end with this episode, even though the season is ending. If you get on Patreon, there will be one more episode about Golf Breeze. But it is t- it has finally come for the middle of the show, but it's probably not going to be in the middle of the show. We're almost at 50 minutes in. It's going to be a lopsided middle, but it is intermission time. Here's some music. I'll be back with the local headlines.
and we're back, and I've got a headline for you. So I 3D printed this little fly swatter like two months ago, and as soon as I made it, all the flies went away. Maybe not two months ago, maybe like a month ago, but uh, I just got my first kill with it while selecting music. So take that fly that's still buzzing around in the middle of October. But we have some real some real stuff here. First one is from oddityscentral.com. Uh, the byline the author was just listed as uh, spooky, so I don't know who that actually is. Uh, the headline is, Care to buy a living, breathing, wish-granting cat for $127,000? Forget wish-granting goldfish, genies in a bottle. You can now own your very own magical cat and have all your wishes fulfilled for the modest price of 10 million rubles, or $127,000. A Novobrisk woman recently posted a bizarre ad on a Russian classified ad platform, Avito, and as soon as I read that, I thought it said Aviato from the the app from Silicon Valley, uh, asking people to pay a small fortune for her pet cat, which is adorable, by the way. A Scottish fold named Vincent the First, or Vinskin for short. The woman, known only as Elena, told Russian journalist that she discovered her cat's wish-granting powers by accident, but has since tested its effectiveness, its effectiveness three times to impressive results. She now wants to share its magic with others, but is uh, asking a considerable fee as a reward for her kindness. It works only with the owners, Elena told. Uh, oof, here we go, ready? Russian name. <clears throat> the Komoslaskia Pravda, I discovered his ability completely by accident. I needed an apartment, and somehow I told Vincent for fun, fulfill my wish, and literally the next day, I realized that everything would come true. You immediately feel the events are starting to take shape, as they should, and a month later, I already had an apartment. The woman didn't mention how exactly she came to have an apartment, Rather was simply given to her or she had to buy it, but she claims that since then, the cat has also helped her family buy another apartment, as well as a brand new car. Her mother, Octavignette Letta, was a real witch, black as coal and also loopier. His dad, Rochester, oh, I, I never realized this, they're talking about the cat, a healthy blue cat, but with straight ears. Elena said Vinisk was born in the kennel and we bought him in 2011 when he was two months old. Since then, she has been living, he has been living, wait, since then, she has been living with us for nine years. I think it's a typo. I think it's a he. Uh, da -da -da -da. Asked why her family decided to give Vinisk away after all these years, especially after discovering his wish-granting powers, Elena said that she just wanted to share her magic with someone else. Plus, it seems the cat only grants people three wishes, of course. But now they have already exhausted theirs. They tried to get a fourth wish granted, but nothing happened, so they decided to let someone else have a go. But instead of just giving Vincent away for free, oh, I'm sorry, Vincent the First away for free, Elena and her family are asking for 10 million rubles and claim the price is more than worth it. Uh, I think they aren't allowed to have a cat at their new apartment and have to get rid of it. So now they're trying to make as much money as I can as they can upon said cat. Um which seems kind of sad actually. But yeah, 
here's the thing. Uh, I don't think the cat had anything to do with it. I think the force of will had probably something to do with it. Uh, maybe a little magic going on. Read Dean Radin's uh, book, True Magic, or more my thought process there. The next one, Nux County Man Faces Charges After Trying to Resurrect His Grandmother. Very short article. Very powerful one, though. Uh, this is from uh, uh, WATE.com. This is written by Robert Holder. Knoxville, Tennessee. A Knox County man is in jail after causing nearly $30,000 in damages to a cemetery in an attempt to resurrect his grandmother. Law enforcement responded on Monday night to reports of vandalism at the church cemetery on a Huckleberry Springs Road. Extensive damage, including dig sites and broken headstones, were found. Danny Frazier admitted to destroying some of the property in an attempt, and this is in quotation marks, to resurrect his grandmother, who is buried at the cemetery. Fraser was arrested and charged with vandalism and criminal trespassing. He was not charged, however, with uh, necromancy. I made up that last sentence. Seemed funnier in my head. Uh, the last one from Inform.com, written by Tanner Robinson. Another clown sighting, everyone. Fargo Mom warns people warns of people wearing clown masks after seeing them during a tennis session. Fargo, North Dakota. Roxine Salonen and one of her two sons were playing tennis on the tennis courts in Island Park on the night of Saturday, October 4th, getting some practice as their high school tennis session wraps up. Being able to come out to Island Park and play tennis has been a real wonderful outlet for my boys said Salonen, a contributing columnist and features writer for the forum. When they got on the court at around 8.30 Sunday night, the sky was black and the, the fluorescent lights were on. About 15 minutes into playing, Solomon noticed she and her sons were attracting a crowd around the fence. And she said at first they stood still. All of a sudden, they started moving. And soon, I then realized, oh, those are people. Solon and her son counted about four people, all wearing clown masks. She said they were chanting something as they closed in on her and her son, but they quickly ran as she called the police, who told her it was the second report of masked clowns in the city that night. Even if it was a practical joke, right now is probably isn't the best time to be doing that, because there's so much worry right now in the world. Solonen said. For Brenda Gear, the owner of Halloween Express, clown costumes have become more popular in her store over the past few years. She said clown masks and suits have been outselling classic Halloween costumes like werewolves and pirates uh, just based on scare factor alone. I'm not necessarily endorsing running around town trying to scare people, but people just have this love affair with clowns, Gear said. What happened to Solonen reminded her of a nationwide clown panic four years ago, which got some attention in Fargo. She hopes that her and her son experienced a one-time thing, but she sent a message for the four people who decided to celebrate Halloween four weeks early. It's easy to hide behind a mask and be bold, but show yourself in the light and, less, and let us see who you are, Solonen said, and that has been... This, hear the clicking of the mouse as I close these uh, ram-gobbling 
news web pages. That has been this week's local headline. And uh, after the boom, we're going to come back with a couple of your small town secrets. And we've got two stories tonight for the final episode of the season. This first one is from Anthony Cleveland, who just sent this to me like yesterday. So I was able to get it into the show. I moved to a small rural town when I was in high school. Despite coming from a different background, I got along right away with everyone there. Eventually, they asked me where I lived and I told them. Then they said, oh, you're right by the cult woods. Every town has a cult woods. They tell me a story about a woman who was raped and murdered in the woods by a satanic cult who frequently held rituals there. The story creeped me out, but I also had some doubt. Were they just messing around with the new kid? The following year, or maybe later in that year, the star basketball player shared a story that the kittens his cat had were all missing. A few days later, he told us the kittens were found strung up together and dangled from his porch. All of them were gutted. His backyard connected directly to the cult woods. Again, I had my doubts, but this wasn't the kind of kid who would make up this story. He was also pretty shook up about it. I think a lot of people would be. A lot of other kids told me they had close relatives who were first responders to the original murder as well, yet I'm still skeptical. I know how urban legends can spread when kids are bored. My brother's girlfriend's uncle told me sort of stuff. It wasn't until later in high school I realized the story stretched far beyond just tales kids swapped. While on a run, I stopped for a break at my girlfriend's grandmother's house. She told us to be careful and not to run near those cult woods. I realized right there that this legend stretches through generations and isn't limited to just school kids. The more I asked, the more folks told me they knew about it, or at least heard something about it. One time I was in the car with my father, and he mentioned how a local farmer just had his cattle stolen by Satanists. I did some basic internet digging to see if I could find any info on the original story. I found there was an abduction, rape, and a murder of a woman in the town in the 90s, but the location of the body was nowhere near the woods. Maybe a combination of hysteria from that murder and the, say, pan the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s spurred the cult woods legend. Everyone I know in that area still clings onto there that there is a cult that visits those woods to perform rituals. I still live near the woods, closer now than in high school actually, and I've never seen anything creepy, and I do look into the woods every time I drive past, but I will probably never step foot in there. Uh, Yep. So I'm going to link cuz he's like an artist. He does uh looks like he does like uh illustrations like comic book illustrations and stuff. He's got a really cool like three-page short horror story as portfolio. So I'll link his website in the show notes for everyone to take a look. And you know, everyone has one of those woods. I think some of those woods have uh something going on and some of them don't. Like we have a cult woods here. I drive through it all the time because it's a nice curvy road you know but uh i don't think there's anything to that because i know that there's a large house back there and the only reason i know there's a large house back there is because my neighbor has been building stuff for said house for like years 
And, uh, but yeah, I think every town has a woods that just creeps people out. I love a good creepy woods story. This next one is from Jane McKell, and she is from uh, the show Straight Up Enigmas on Straight Up Strange uh, Network. And this is her story. I'm sure most everyone has at least one of those haunted locations growing up. Like a woods. The abandoned warehouse or a creepy cemetery in town. Our friends would dare us to go explore late at night. For me, those places in the area were Flo's grave at Ogden Cemetery, Ted Bundy's house in Salt Lake City, and Kay's Cross in Kaysville itself. Kay's Cross is the stuff of legend where I grew up in Davis County. An imposing stone and mortar structure with an inscribed letter K that loomed 20 feet high over a remote hollow until it was bombed in 1992. Since then, the cross has just been another pile of rubble on a clearing. To get to it, most people had to first hike through the Kaysville Cemetery and then trudge over a scrub oak covered hills. A lot of Kaysville teenagers, including myself and I, made trips over the years. Although I don't remember having to pass through the Kaysville Cemetery. Before going, I heard plenty of spooky tales from my classmates. Stories like, during a full moon, the cross gives off an eerie glow and will burn anyone that touches it. Or, a strange ghostly woman haunts the cross, chasing away visitors. Or, here we go, Satanists perform sacrifices by the structure on Halloween night. Or, the face of a murdered woman appears in the cross on the anniversary of her death. Or, a mysterious dogman guard the cross, my personal favorite. These were all types of stories passed down from my cousin's co-workers, best friend's sister-in-law, of course. The most popular legend, or the one I heard anyway, is that a local polygamist built the cross to encase the wife he had murdered and then killed his six other wives, buried them around the cross, and hung himself nearby in remorse. Another version of the legend is that he only sealed the heart of his seventh, seventh wife in the cross. The center of the cross was hollowed out over the years, but as far as I know, nothing was ever found. As interesting as these stories are, no news stories can be found concerning any such murder in Kaysville. One of the few stories written about Kay's Cross, a 1981 Lakeside Review report by Maggie Holmes, relates a legend in which a series of malevolent spirits guards the cross. In this scary story, anyone who wants to visit Kay's Cross must sneak past these specters residing in the Kaysville Cemetery, or the ghouls will make them pay. A less ghost-oriented tale surrounding the cross is that of an angry farmer, probably the landowner, guarded it. He would chase away any visitors with a shotgun loaded with rock salt. Many first-hand witnesses have verified this, so it has a ring of truth. Plus, there is something I myself heard, which made me nervous to go tromping through the hollow to see the cross as a teenager. Though no official history exists for the building of Case Cross, there are some theories. One possible explanation is that it was constructed by a Kaysville's founder, Father Bishop William Kay, as a boundary marker or a burial place for his wife. Most longtime residents, though, believe that Kingston's, a polygamous family, built the cross in the 1940s as a property marker. That would make sense, with a large letter K on the cross, however. The K could also stand 
for uh, Krishna Venta, a California cult leader who claimed to be a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Don't they all live? Who passed through Kaysville in the late 1940s. The mystery of the cross grew deeper when it was bombed in 1992. The explosion that took out Kay's cross was pretty spectacular. It obliterated the base and hurled 10 pound rocks, chunks of rock up to 80 feet. The only known casualty was a pheasant roosting in some tree 40 feet away. An investigation failed to reveal what type of explosion was used. The sheriffs sent evidence to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, but no one was ever arrested and the case remains open. Though toppled, the ruins of Case Cross still lay in the hollow for brave teenagers to visit. While nothing supernatural ever happened to me when I went to Case Cross, that doesn't mean all the stories I heard aren't true. There really could be dogmen, or the ghost of a murdered wife prowling the hollow late at night. For now, Case Hollow remains untouched by builders, but development is quickly making its way towards that area. Many, maybe the stories will stop once the land is developed. Or maybe the ghost of seven murdered wives resting in Case Cross won't appreciate their burial place being disturbed. That's a fantastic story. I'm going to have to dig up on like Google Maps and see if I can see it. Uh, I've got a lot of time on my hands. Maybe I should go check it out. But that has been this week's, this episode's edition of Your Small Town Secrets. If you have a small town secret to share, uh, uh, creepy woods, uh, haunted location, true crime story of Bigfoot sighting, a UFO sighting, uh, were you abducted by aliens? Uh, anything. You got a story to tell, you got an article to point to, whatever, and you want to get on the show, there are a lot of ways to do it. The uh, easiest way to get it to me is, at least for me, is to go to sdscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the main page, there's an email form that will get it right to me. Uh, you can also get at me on social media. I am most active on Twitter, and that is at STScast. Facebook is also at STScast. Instagram is the redheaded stepchild that I couldn't get is at STScast.gram. And so that's all the social media stuff. You can get it to me there. Or if you just want to engage with me for whatever reason, uh, you can do that as well. Uh, please, if you can, leave a rating, a review on iTunes or whatever you use to listen to the show. That all helps out the algorithms that they use. That all helps uh, the show grow. Uh, like I said, there's a Patreon you can check out. Uh, $1, $3, $5 levels right now. I actually might make some tweaks to it. Uh, uh, add some, like, mess around with some stuff for the beginning of season five. So, but I'll keep everyone updated on that if I do it. What else do we got here? Uh, also, you know, you can support the show with merch. There's a merch tab on the website t shirts, coffee mugs, stickers, phone cases. Uh, a really cool, which I'm hoping to get in a couple of time, a couple of days, is uh, the uh, Point Pleasant Mothman shirt that I did a while back based on one of the photos that me and my friend took when we went to the TNT area. It was like at the end of the night, we were coming back the infamous power plants right in front of us. And it's just this awesome photo I made a t-shirt out of it. It's on there, but there's a lot of ways you can support the show, uh, help throw some ducats in the bucket. It will all go back into the show to help it grow, to help it continue on. Uh, if you can't do that, uh, just tell a friend, 
if everyone that listens to the show gets one other person to listen to the show, then we've automatically doubled the audience. And I can't thank everyone enough for listening and supporting. This has been uh, a very different season in the in the term of growth. Like like I said, Patreon was lost launched this season, and just twenty twenty has been fucking weird, man. Um, I've been off of work since the end of March, and my furlough has ended, and now I'm laid off, and uh. I'm either I'm on the razor I'm on the the knife's edge of either getting hired back on and getting everything I've ever wanted like help helping to develop like a new department and all this stuff or having to look for another job. So it's been but it's been a weird year. I know it's been a crappy year for pretty much everybody. But you know what? I feel and this may be like weird of me and too like witchy of me, but I feel like we're on a pivoting point. I think things are starting to turn uh, into a different perspective, uh, a, a better perspective. I feel pretty positive right now, and I haven't felt this positive in a long time. It's probably at least March or April. But I know it's been a crap year. I hope that this show has helped get you through it. I, I, I know I haven't tried to harp on COVID and all that in 2020 uh, because this is an escape for a lot of people, but this is the end of the season and I just wanted to get it out. Uh, like I said, stay safe, stay healthy. It will come to an end. It will change. We just have to keep trucking on and we just have to make that happen. So I hope everyone has a safe and happy Halloween. Uh, Sam Hain, whatever you got going on, I hope that you, you make something out of it this year. And I think that's really all I got. This is the end of season four. This is the final episode. Uh, I'm going to take a break. I'll be back at the beginning of November. But uh, I am going to throw some stuff into the main feed, uh, an Estes Method session that I made a YouTube video out of. They're really just audio anyway. I just wanted to see if I could make a kind of fun loopy video thing on it, but I'm going to release that audio, I think into an actual podcast, uh, straight of trans productions. will be releasing a special kind of mushed together compilation story, spooky story for uh, Halloween. I'll be throwing that into the feed. And if you're on Patreon, I am going to do a backroads episode over the break about a men in black story that I wasn't able to, to do on the main show, but I can fit it in and do it for backwards. So there will be a backwards episode over the break as well. Once again, thanks for listening. Thanks everyone. Be safe. Have a fun Halloween. Uh, don't get sick. It will get better. And I will see everyone in the beginning of November for the beginning of season five. And uh, that's it. I'm out until then. Remember every town has a secret. What? is yours.
Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.